BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot to go through today. Uh, there, there is so much happening and so much we are going to get into in this first hour. I want to raise a few questions here. Uh, is Trump setting up something where in the German Holocaust or the Holocaust committed by the Germans, we can find lessons that don't, we don't need death camps for. We, you know, I'll get to that in a minute. I want to get to that. But is it? Is it time to use that word again, Holocaust? How important is history? And what are the parallels between Reagan stealing Carter's debate prep book and Trump taking stolen Democratic strategy data on Michigan and Wisconsin, among other things? I want to start with a piece that Mark Sumner wrote for the Daily Kos. It was an interesting little piece of history uh, that I was unfamiliar with, or with which I was unfamiliar, which was that prior to the Civil War, in the years leading up to the Civil War, or in the year leading up to the Civil War, there were actually, there was actually a lot of support in the North for the South simply seceding, separating itself from the Union and going its own private way. 
In fact, had it been put to a vote, it probably would have been approved because the southern plantation owners, slaveholders, had been waging a campaign in the north, a PR campaign through the northern newspapers, had been waging this campaign to convince largely white northern workers, working people, working class people, that if slavery was ended in the South, that the North would be flooded with freed slaves who, wanted, who would want to take their jobs and would work for cheaper than those people were working for. And so the white workers in the North were like, hey, let the South go. But have them keep the slaves down there. And as Mark Sumner, and I didn't, I didn't realize this, as Mark Sumner, uh, as I've mentioned before, you know, the Civil War is not something, I, I'm really good on revolutionary era history, but the Civil War is an area that I'm, I'm certainly no scholar of. But Mark Sumner says that all changed with Sumter, which was, you know, the, the first shots of the, of the Civil War. And he said the South opened fire and shot themselves. At that point, Ulysses S. Grant, who became the great Northern general during the war and then later became president of the United States, and authored a remarkable history of the United States in the process, uh, he, he, although he struggled throughout his presidency with his alcoholism. Anyhow, US, Ulysses S. Grant said there are but two parties now, traitors and patriots. And I want hereafter to be ranked with the latter, and I trust the stronger party. That would be the Patriots, and which is the title of Mark Sumner's piece in Daily Kos. There are but two parties now, traitors and patriots. And I think it's spot on. So let's step into the Wayback Machine, back to 1980. There was one debate in the 1980 election. Ronald Reagan only agreed to one debate with Jimmy Carter. He couldn't get out of it. You know, his, his, uh, his uh, handlers were reluctant to have even one debate. They didn't even want to have one debate because Reagan was not that bright. And it's not that he was stupid. I mean, he was, a, he was competent and he was very good at memorizing lines. But they were just concerned that Jimmy Carter would eat his lunch. I mean, Jimmy Carter was the sitting president of the United States. He knew policy inside out. Reagan had been, you know, a TV actor and a movie star and had been governor of California for a while, but and all that changed. Well, it didn't, I mean, they, they ended up with this scheduling this one debate. It was October 28th, 1980, which was what, two weeks before the election. So the stakes were really high. I mean, really high. The Republicans were scared to death. Carter was going to negotiate peace with Iran. And uh, so all this was going on. So what happens? Somebody stole Carter's debate prep and gave it to Reagan. Now, there's a whole huge debate about who did it and how it happened. And, you know, uh, was it David Stockman? Was it Bill Casey, who uh, Reagan later made head of the CIA? Uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. But you can actually find in Stockman's files and in the Reagan Library uh, at Stanford University's uh, Hoover Institute, not the Reagan Library, but the campaign archives, you can actually find hundreds of pages of documents from the Carter campaign. And there are those who argue and continue to argue to this day that one of the reasons why Reagan did so well in that debate and ultimately went on to beat Jimmy Carter in the election, because on the day of the debate, there was an 11 point undecided, which could have swung in either direction and could have given the election to Carter as well as to Reagan. That on the day of that debate, that Reagan did as well as he did, basically anticipating every single argument Carter was going to make because he had the stolen debate book. Now, the Reagan campaign kept this secret really well. David Stockman bragged about it to a local newspaper a little after the fact, but it never got outside that local newspaper. And it wasn't until 1982 or 83 that this, uh, June of 1983 actually, that this little obscure story popped up in a book that was, uh, that was published titled uh, Lawrence Barrett's book, Gambling with History, Reagan in the White House, that laid this out. So with that in mind, Let's again step into the Wayback Machine, and only instead of going back to just before the elections of, two, of 1980, the Reagan election, let's go back to just before the election of Donald Trump, October 31st, 2016. I think it's really interesting. The, the Reagan debate was October 28th, 1980, roughly two weeks before the election. This is October 31st, 2016, a little less than a week before the election. And this article appeared in the New Yorker. 
This is not now. This was a week before Donald Trump was elected. And I quote from John Cassidy's piece. According to the polls, Donald Trump has been trailing Hillary Clinton badly in Michigan and Wisconsin for months. In Michigan, two surveys taken last week showed Clinton leading by seven percentage points. In a third poll, the margin was six points. It's a similar story in Wisconsin, where the last three polls have shown Clinton ahead by four points, six points, and seven points. Why then, writes John Cassidy in The New Yorker, wondering, why then, with just one week left before Election Day, is Trump campaigning in those two states? Surely he'd be better off camping out in places where the polls are closer, like Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, and Ohio. The Trump campaign, though, is operating according to its own logic or illogic. In other words, he doesn't know, the, the journalist, he doesn't know why Trump is campaigning in Michigan and, and Wisconsin when there's no way he could win those states. And even the Republican strategists don't know. Asked why, back to the article, asked why Trump scheduled two events in Michigan for Monday, a senior advisor to his campaign told the Detroit News, quote, our numbers show this race being a dead heat with Hillary really hitting the ceiling in the state, end quote. End quote. That sounded like boosterism. Keep in mind, this was written a week before the election. But Trump and his coterie are, aren't visiting Grand Rapids, Warren, and Eau Claire just for the fun of it. So here you have, in the New Yorker, John Casty wondering out loud, why is it Donald Trump is going to Michigan and Wisconsin when there's no way, according to the polls, that he could win either one of those two states? Was it because among the documents stolen in the DNC server hack, or the DNC hack, and by the way, the FBI didn't need the physical server. They had a clone of it. <laughs> you don't need to actually look at a physical hard drive. You just, I mean, typically this is how these investigations happen, is they, you know, they clone your hard drive and off they go. But in any case, they had, quote, images of it. So, but in any case, you know, this was deflection by Trump. But one of the things that was stolen, just like the Reagan campaign stole Jimmy Carter's debate prep, in this case, this Russian invasion of the DNC stole the Democratic Party's data on a half a million voters, on st specific strategy. That would include arguments that are being made. I mean, all these things, right? And it looks like it had to do with Michigan and Wisconsin. So how is this different? I mean, are we watching the Reagan playbook? And by the way, Roger Stone was back there with Ronald Reagan. Paul Manafort was back there with Ronald Reagan, you know, helping run his campaign. Are we watching this just like, or did we watch rather, you know, a year and a half ago, did we watch the, the Reagan's theft of the election just get repeated by Trump's theft of the election? In this case, using material stolen by the Russians? We'll be back at 16 minutes past the hour. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And from there, I want to segue into a conversation about our use of language, particularly the word Holocaust. Stick around. So as we're learning more and more, by the way, welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, fair and only slightly unbalanced. As we're looking back at the, at the, at the, the indictment of this uh, woman who was, uh, you know, via the NRA, inserting... Uh, the Russians into the Republican Party, as we look at the attempts to, and we, you know, uh, it was successful, apparently, to, uh, you know, not even apparently, the, the successful attempt to hack into the Democratic Party and, and get all their content, then, then they got all this information on voters, and then there was the actual successful penetration of American voting systems around the country. And you've got Trump's national security advisors saying our voting systems are at risk. Then comes this story from the Wall Street Journal. A fellow by the name of Jeff Tricoli. Or maybe it's Tricoli. I'm guessing it's Tricoli. He's the guy uh, who, uh, a senior, he was a senior FBI official, and his job was to make sure well, let me, I'll just read it. This is, again, uh, this is Joan McCarter. This is from today's Daily, Daily Coast is on a roll today. Lost in Monday's Surrender Summit comes the unsettling news from the Wall Street Journal that senior FBI official, the senior FBI official who has been overseeing the task force charged with keeping Russia out of our elections has resigned. 
Jeff Tricoli has, he's, is off to make more money as a senior vice president at Charles Schwab. He left in June, and nobody at the FBI is giving comment as to why. But as the Wall Street Journal says, it adds to questions among some tech companies and lawmakers about how much the administration and the task force in particular are doing to protect future elections from Russian meddling. And I would add, and I, you know, we need to make this point over and over and over again, if the Russians can do it, so can any dweeb that the billionaires want to hire, so can China, so could Israel, so could Saudi Arabia, so could France, so could, I mean, you pick your country, right? That has a, a really, North Korea, I mean, all of these countries have advanced cyber capabilities. We're not talking Hungary here. Which takes us to another piece of news that was just published today over at, at, uh, at uh, vice.com, their motherboard column. And this is by Kim Zetter. Kim Zetter had written a piece in the New York Times sometime back in which uh, ESNS, the largest supplier of voting, machine, voting, uh, voting machines and voting machine systems in the United States, said, oh, we don't uh, put remote access software into our systems, and these are like the tabulator systems, the, uh, the uh, uh, election eligibility roles, you know, the voter registration roles, um, the, the summaries of, you know, who vote, how, how the vote happened, who won, who didn't win, basically the final vote totals. Oh, we would not, are you kidding? No. Well, in response to a letter from Ron Wyden, my senator from Oregon, he sent this letter to ESNS back in April and said, did you guys put software in these things that allows anybody to access them? And they said, yes, we provided PC Anywhere remote connection software between 2000 and 2006. Now, e PC Anywhere is a product from a company called Symantec. And, uh, you know, it's often used by sys system administrators, sysops, whatever, to, to uh, get access, remote access to computers. In theory, nothing wrong with that. Unless there is a problem with the software. Which takes us to page two, maybe paragraph 15 of the article. In 2006, the same period when ESNS says it was still installing PC Anywhere on election systems, and by the way, many of those systems are still in use, hackers stole the source code for PC Anywhere software. Though the public didn't learn of this until later in 2012, six years later, when a hacker posted some of the source code online, forcing Semantic, the distributor of PC Anywhere, to admit that it had been stolen years earlier. When Semantic, so now here we are, six years later, Semantic finally has to admit, yes, we put this software on these election computers. They took the unprecedented step. This is Semantic, not, not, uh, not, the, P, not, the, not the vote counting people, the PC Anywhere people, right? The remote access to the computer software people. The ones who made the software that allows anybody who knows how to hack that software, anybody who has the source code, which had been available in the dark web since 2006. In 2012, when it finally hit the media, Symantec came out and said, well, I'll, I'll just read it again from the Medium article, it, or from the uh, motherboard, the vice.com article. It, when Symantec admitted to the theft in 2012, now this is the 20. 2006 theft. When they admitted to this in 2012, it took the unprecedented step of warning users to disable or uninstall the software until it could make sure any security flaws in the software had been patched. Around the same time, security researchers discovered a critical vulnerability in PC Anywhere that would allow an attacker to seize control of a system that had the software installed on it without needing to authenticate themselves to the system with a password. So you could get into the, into the voting computers, the tabulators. Keep in mind, I, you know, earlier in the show, I just, or in the, in, in the hour, I just read to you from an article that was published a week before the 2016 election, wondering out loud, why is Trump going to Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin, excuse me? Was it to campaign or was it to make something look good, in my opinion? And asking out loud, why is he doing this when he's seven points behind in both states? There's no way he's going to win. Why is he wasting his time there? Well, now we know that these, these voting systems 
you didn't even need to, to figure out the password once you had this source code, which had been available since 2006 on the dark web. Around this time, and, and, and to make it even worse, around this time, security researchers discovered a critical vulnerability in PC Anywhere that would allow an attacker to seize control of a system that had the software installed on it without needing to authenticate themselves to the system with a password. And other researchers with the security firm Rapid7 scanned the internet for any computers that were online and had PC Anywhere installed on them and found nearly 150,000 were configured in a way that would allow direct access to them. Uh, they go on to describe this as non-trivial. Motherboard contacted two of the top vendors, Hard Inner Civic and Dominion, to verify this, but neither responded. Doug Jones, Professor Doug Jones, Professor of Computing Science at the University of Iowa, long-term, long-time expert on voting machines, confirmed that other companies also routinely installed remote access software during that period of time. Certainly, he said, Diebold election systems did the same, and I'd assume the others did as well. In the case of Diebold, many of their contracts with customers included the requirement of a remote login port, allowing the company to have remote access to the customer system in order to allow customer support. Now, you know, there's a whole bunch of twos here laying around the ground, and we seem to be adding them up. Two plus two is four, plus two is six, plus two is eight, plus, you know, two is ten, and at what point do we get to... Donald Trump is sitting in the White House, completely illegitimately. It's time for the Democratic Party to start raising hell about the fact that our elections have been privatized. What Thomas Paine referred to as the beating heart of American democracy, well, he called it the beating heart of our republic, is the vote. That that vote has been privatized? I mean, it's a horrible thing, right? It's a crime against democracy. It's a crime against our republic to privatize something like education, which Betsy DeVos and the Republicans are you know, aggressively trying to do. It's a crime against you know, the idea of a, of a functioning society to privatize something like water systems, power systems, septic systems, and yet that's being done all over the country too. But you can't even have a functioning democracy if you have privatized your, the beating heart of your democracy, the election systems. And now, not only were they privatized, but the private company that did it installed software that any hacker for six years, from 2006 to 2012, to how many elections was that that the Republicans took? Particularly the 2010 election, where they took enough state houses all over the country that they could, that they could completely gerrymander the entire United States to seize control of basically everything? They're within two states now of calling a constitutional convention to rewrite the Constitution. They're, they're putting in federal judges like there's no tomorrow. How many of these things do we need to add up before, you know, the, 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 the red lights, the alarms start flashing? Oh, that's right. That's what the president's national security advisor said. Dan Coats said day before yesterday, director of national security, about our election systems for the election that we are going to have in what, four months, five months? And obviously, it's been that way for our election system since at least 2006, and maybe since 2002, when you know, Congress decided to hand $5 billion to the states with the help of America Vote Act so that the states could buy these electronic voting machines from these private for-profit companies who were big donors to the Republicans who helped write the Help America Vote Act. And yeah, I get it. It was bipartisan legislation. In fact, in fact, it passed the Senate with something like 90 votes or more. I get that. But this was a huge mistake, privatizing our vote. And now apparently it's been hacked. This is incredible. We'll be back with your calls after this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. What do you think is going on here and how did we get here? We'll be back. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never 
used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Let's talk about plain speaking. I mentioned this at the beginning of the first hour. I'd hoped to get to it in the first hour. I didn't. So I'm going to this make that this the basic topic of this hour. And it has to do with just saying right out loud what's going on. Donald Trump, for example, is a racist. Richard Wolff in Today's Guardian. Let's, uh, not the economist, the the op-ed writer, the commentator. He says, let's drop the euphemisms. Donald Trump is a racist president. He said, uh, you know, he starts out saying, you know, a lot of people think that Trump is just crazy or there's, you know, incoherence going on here. It's just like a random. He says, watching this pinball president ricochet around Europe, you could be forgiven for thinking there's no method to Donald Trump's madness. You know, and then he goes through a list of things that, that Trump, you know, NATO's a ripoff and Theresa May is no good. And oh, no, then now NATO's very strong and Theresa May is wonderful. And, I'm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You go, what the hell is going on here? Well, actually, there is something that's very, very consistent. As Richard Wolff writes, immigration is where Trump's journey, journey begins and ends. The message running all the way through this stick of rock. Right. And I would add immigration and the role that race plays in that. Trump's comments while he's standing next to Theresa May about how, how Great Britain has, its character has changed, its culture has changed, and not for the better. What does he mean by that? People with darker skin are increasing their numbers relative to the white-skinned population of, uh, or pale-skinned population of the UK and of Europe, broadly. And a lot of them are immigrants. Richard Wolff goes on to say, Trump has mused before about how good it would be to deport people without judges messing things up. He doesn't consider his own country's ample immigration laws to be actual laws that he respects. He said, this is the language and mentality of so many extreme right and neo-Nazi parties in Europe today. Richard Wolff is ready. He goes on to say, this should not be a surprise, and it shouldn't be. This is the guy who back when President Obama was elected, started and, and became the principal national spokesman for, and I believe as a consequence of, was made, was given a regular Tuesday morning slot on Fox and Friends for years, I think it was five or six years, that Trump was on every single week on Fox and Friends to talk about how America's first black president shouldn't be in the White House, should be removed from the White House, because he was born in Kenya. The whole birtherism thing. Trump began with racism in his modern political incarnation. I mean, he, he began with racism back when he, was, when he was a kid, when he was in, in uh, Brooklyn and his dad was uh, you know, a, a landlord. And uh, Trump was involved with the group that, that if somebody came in and made an application to rent from, from Fred Trump and they were black, they put the little letter C somewhere in the upper left-hand corner, I believe it was, or the upper right-hand corner of the application. And it was kind of inconspicuous. And when they saw the C, they knew, oh, it's a colored person. And of course, suddenly, the apartments were all sold out. That's where Trump started. 
His father was arrested in a Klan riot, and it wasn't because he was protesting the Klan. From there, he goes to, uh, you know, becoming a wealthy businessman in New York, and when a, a, a woman is raped and left for dead in, in uh, Central Park, turns out by a white guy who is a serial rapist, Trump accuse, accuses five black teenagers of it and whips up hysteria to the point that he's buying, uh, I think it was a full page ad, if it wasn't, it was huge, in any case, a large ad in the New York Times, demanding the death penalty for the Central Park Five, who were exonerated. And he continues to call them guilty. If you want to know who Trump is going after in his tweets, all you have to do is look at the color of the skin of the people he's attacking, nine times out of ten. NFL, he's going after black players. Black Lives Matter, he's going after. Members of Congress, oh, let's find a black woman. That's a twofer. And go after Maxine Waters. I mean, this, this is not dog whistle. This is bullhorn. He started, you know, he launched his presidential campaign with his whole rant about how the rapists are coming from Mexico, which is an echo of reefer madness in the 1920s. We've got to criminalize marijuana because when those black people smoke it, they can't stop raping white women. Right? That, I mean, this, this, these are these old racist tropes. What's, what's, you know, Trump's second thing that he does in Ohio? I mean, the first thing he does is he lets the coal companies dump more of their waste into the rivers. That's sure going to help the average working person poison their children with their drinking water. Second thing he does is he pushes through his Muslim ban. Oh, did you notice most of those Muslims he's banning have darker skin than, for example, Donald Trump does or I do? And now he's unleashed ICE, this deportation force, on anyone who even looks remotely Latino. And now they're actually, they're going back through uh, people who have become U.S. citizens, naturalized U.S. citizens, to see if they lied about anything so they can remove their citizenship and deport them retroactively. And I guarantee you he's not starting with the Norwegians or the Germans or the Irish immigrants. I guarantee you. I don't have the proof, but I would bet anything. Which brings me to a piece written by one of the leading experts on the Holocaust and on genocide studies. He's a historian. He's a lecturer at the University of Virginia. His name is, we is named Waitman Wade Bourne, B-E-O-R-N. And you can read his piece in today's Washington Post. And the headline is, Parallels Lie in Authoritarianism, Authoritarianism Racism, ethnic myths and dehumanizing language, not the final solution. And the argument that he's making in this, in this article, and it's a really brilliant article, and I strongly encourage you to check it out in today's Washington Post, is that, yes, when people speak of the Holocaust in the United States, typically what we're talking about is the Holocaust, the, 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 the so-called final solution, which began in 1941, the murder of the Jews and the trade unionists and the communists and the gays and the gypsies and, and ultimately even some of the Catholics, but principally the murder of the Jews. But he says, you know, take that out of the equation for the moment. And I, I realize that's difficult to do, particularly if you're Jewish, but there was more going on between 1933 and 1941. In fact, there, there was very little, you know, killing of Jews going on outside of the work camps like Dachau. It was not a death camp, it was a labor camp. Sort of like privatized prisons, only, you know, much more extreme. But anyhow, he says, there's no reason that hysterical, historical comparisons between, between what is going on right now in this country and around the world, with this, swing, this hard swing to the right, and the Nazis. He says, there's no reason that historical comparisons must immediately center on the final solution, the murder of Jews. The Nazis themselves did not begin with that solution in mind. He said genocides, and dictatorships for that matter, don't just spring into his existence, they begin incrementally. First authoritarianism, I alone can solve these problems. Then racism, oh, it's the Mexican rapists. Then ethnic myths, these people are animals. And dehumanizing language. 
He said, this is where Holocaust comparisons can and should be made. And I'm making them right now. The Nuremberg race laws. Now, these were the, the laws in Germany that said that if you had a certain percentage of Jewish blood that you couldn't be a German citizen any longer. The Nuremberg race laws were based on an earlier version employed in the colony of Germany in southwest Africa called Namibia. Uh, Hitler himself looked to Roman, Roman antiquity, I'm quoting from the article in the Washington Post now, as a partial inspiration for his planned intentional starvation policies in Eastern Europe. He called the Spanish conquistador Cortez a moderate man. Cortez, of course, engaged in genocide in uh, the northern part of South America. He referred, Adolf Hitler referred to Thomas Jefferson's Indian removal policies, which were genocidal, admiringly, and he called the Gold Volga River our Mississippi. This is Adolf Hitler saying the Volga River is our Mississippi where inferior races must be driven. Hitler further stated that, quote, natives of Eastern Europe should be looked upon as redskins, right? America engaged in, in, in ethnic cleansing and massive genocide. We can too. Hitler admiringly commented that America using racist guidelines had, quote, established specific criteria for immigration in an attempt to maintain racial purity. And it was true. And it's what Trump is trying to bring us back to. So he says, you don't have to begin in 1941 to find these parallels. In fact, it's important not to, but to look at the beginnings. How does this stuff begin? And then you ask, you know, where does it go? Right, but where, how does it begin? So when I come back from the break, I'm going to go through some of the how is it beginning, again from this fellow's article in today's Washington Post. And to give credit where credit is due, the title is Parallels Lies in, Lie in Authoritarianism, Racism, Ethnic Myths, and Dehumanizing Language, Not the Final Solution, by Waitman Wade Bourne in today's Washington Post. We'll be back. And welcome back. Morris listening in, on KPFK in Los Angeles. Hey, Morris in Long Beach, California. What's up? Hey, Professor, here we go. I'm running for president, everybody. Uh, Donald Trump, he got him a base. I'm going to get me a base. Okay. okay. Here we go. No, If you make less than a million dollars in this country, you're not paying no more income taxes. I'm going to give you free health care. I'm going to give you free education, okay, and nobody's going to go to sleep hungry at night. I wish somebody would ask me how I'm going to pay for all this. How are you going to pay for all this, Morris? I'm so glad you asked that. Okay, there's a little bit of, you know about the Panama Papers, there's a little bit of money over there, but remember when the Swiss got busted and had to pay a $3.2 billion fine because they were housing some uh, money over there and uh, people were hiding their money over there so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it? Here's what I'm going to do, Professor. I'm going to pull a Putin. Let me tell you what Putin did. He told those oligarchs in Russia, if you don't bring your money back over here and put it back in this country, I'm going to find it and I'm going to take it from you. And that's what I'm going to do, and that's how I'm going to finance my new society. We're going to make America great again, everybody. We're going to eliminate the billionaire class. We're going to go back to when Jake Paul Getty was the only guy that had anywhere near a billion dollars. So I, uh, anyone that criticizes my program or doesn't think it's going to come to pass, they're one of the people that's got some money over there in Switzerland. Yeah, and okay. by the way, it wasn't just Putin. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, effectively the ruler of Saudi Arabia right now, because uh, the king is, you know, febrile. Uh, he did the same thing. He, he brought all the oligarchs into the, 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 whichever hotel it was, one of the fancy hotels there, and locked them down and said, you know, bring your money back to Saudi Arabia and give me a piece of it. Um, so yeah, uh, I, think, I think you're on to something, Morris. I, I wish you well. Keep us up to date on how the, uh, how the uh, campaign is going. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Comrade is another glorious day in Trumpistan, is it not? Indeed. Listen, uh, I think I can effectively prove uh, collusion. You ready for this? Sure. All right. Uh, for, at first, uh, Trump was, oh, there was no hacking. And then later on, he backed up and said, well, yeah, there was hacking, but it wasn't the Russians. And then he backed up and said, well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yesterday, we found out that uh, Trump said, God and everybody, listen, uh, Russia, Thing to say, listen, Russia, if you can hack those 30,000 emails, you'll be doing everybody a big favor. And they did it that day. That's correct. That's not causation. I don't know what is. That is collusion. Yeah, that goes way beyond correlation uh, to causation, I think. Uh, you know, and, and I mean, if you were running Russia and you did not like Hillary Clinton because of her position on Ukraine and other things, and a then the Republican candidate for president said, hey, 
Help me out here. Publicly, right in front of America and the world, what would you do, Chaz? How is our how are our, our grandfathers not spinning in their graves having full Cold War for an entire generation? You remember duck and cover? I do. Yeah, I do. And uh, right, I, I, you know, yeah, and you know, where where are where are the Republicans? I mean, this is bizarre. Chaz, thanks a lot for the call. It's good to hear from you, and I do appreciate it. Um, wow. And uh, I'm going to get back to the, you know, what's going on right now. Stick around. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Hans Nichols is uh, tweeting, just in Rod Rosenstein was summoned to the White House today. Now, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to read the last sentence of the tweet first, and we're going to, we have Craig Aarons on the line with us. We're going to pick up Craig in just a second, but I, I have to share the story with you. The last sentence of the tweet is, uh, Donald Trump is still in the residence. In other words, he's still upstairs in the White House. He's still watching TV. Well, that's, that's what he does in the residence. He, he you know, he, he talks on the phone to, to Sean Hannity, and he, and he watches TV. Donald Trump is still up in the residence and has not shown up in the West Wing this morning. This was tweeted at 11.44 a.m. Eastern time. That would be about three hours ago. Two and a half hours ago. Rod Rosenstein was summoned summoned to the White House today, four days after he indicted 12 Russian intelligence officers. He was seen leaving the White House at 11.28 a.m. Unclear if he met with President Trump, who is still in the residence and hasn't showed up at the West Wing this morning. So there's a couple of possibilities. Perhaps one of, uh, perhaps John Kelly or one of the other senior members of Trump's staff or cabinet who are involved in national security, who are facing a chorus of calls to resign from the Trump administration and leave this traitor behind. Perhaps one of them wanted to sit down with Rod Rosenstein and say, hey, you know, you're overseeing the Mueller investigation. Is there enough dirt here that Trump's going to get impeached? Is it time for me to bail out? Should I leave a sinking ship? Another possibility, one of those same people or more than one sat down with Rosenstein and said, we're, we're over it. Trump screwed us in, in Helsinki. He, you know, he, he, he gave it all up to the Russians and that's it. And how can we help? We would like to participate with the investigation. That's a possibility. Third possibility, Rod Rosenstein got fired this morning. Now, Trump never fires anybody himself. He likes to do it on television. It's an act. In real life, he's afraid to do it. He's a coward. He's a bully. 
and 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 you know bullies are typically cowards. So another possibility: Rosenstein got fired, or got told that he's going to be fired, or the process was set into place. We don't know. We don't know what's going on here. Another possibility: Trump said, "Hey, you know, I'm seeing on the news here. Finally, Fox News is starting to report it that I looked like an idiot in Helsinki, and that and that uh, you know Putin isn't always a nice guy." Uh, can you tell me what's going on? What are you learning about, uh, you know, Russian interference in the elections? I doubt that's the case because I don't think Trump is that curious or that thoughtful. But God only knows. I just wanted to flag that for you. I'm guessing it's something that we'll be talking about tomorrow. On the line with us is Craig Aaron. He is the president and CEO of, the, of Free Press and Free Press Action Fund, the website freepress.net. And uh, you can tweet him at not Aaron Craig. Uh, Craig Aaron, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Great having you with us. I wanted to, uh, to we originally were talking about talking about the uh, FCC and the Sinclair uh, mega merger that, that may be dead as a consequence of some comments that Ajit Pai has made. But uh, breaking news today, a, uh, a Republican has finally signed on. Uh, this is uh, Representative Mike Kaufman, who uh, represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District. And uh, the number for Congress is switchboard 202-224-3121. If you want to, A, thank Congressman Kaufman for taking a stand, or B, encourage other Republicans to do the same, he has added his signature to the discharge petition to force Paul Ryan to allow the House to vote on something the Senate has already voted on, which is to overturn the repeal of net neutrality, which I realize is a double negative, but um, they need they need 218 right they need 218 votes to do this he becomes the 177th it's going to take some more Republicans and uh, apparently some more Democrats where are we at on that and uh, let's start there yeah well you described it well Tom and uh, yeah today Mike Hoffman becomes the first Republican to step forward and put his name in the House first Republican in the House put his name on this discharge petition that could force a vote on net neutrality and. Uh, that's a, a big shift in momentum. There has been a partisan divide on this issue. And so the willingness of Republicans to rebuke a Republican FCC chair, Mike Kaufman, has now opened the door. So we're, we're increasingly optimistic, and largely because this was a result of pressure from his district. He's a, a congressman who's in a tough re-election fight in a purple district. And he was hearing from his constituents week after week, even when he went, he said specifically, when he went on a trip to uh, Iraq to meet with soldiers, in Afghanistan that uh, young soldiers were telling him how important net neutrality was. So he got the message. Uh, he is a congressman who had spoken out against what a GPI did back in December. Uh, but this is a big step forward in him adding his name to the Congressional Resolution, uh, the Congressional Review Act uh, resolution of disapproval. Uh, and it makes me optimistic. I mean, we do have a number of votes still to get, but we're at 177. There are a handful of Democrats who are still not on the bill. And then uh, most of the Republicans, uh, now with the notable exception of Mike Kaufman. But once that door is open, it's been our experience that others will follow. We saw that in the Senate, where we already passed a bill against the very long odds uh, to overturn what the FCC did, and several Republicans crossed the aisle to support that measure. So we're going to be pushing uh, all month long and throughout the summer, whatever it takes, uh, to try to, um, uh, to, to try to move more Republicans to the right side of this issue. And it's a good one for them to get on because it's vastly popular. Eighty percent, uh, more than 80 percent of Republicans support net neutrality and even higher percentage of Democrats and independents. This is a winning issue for politicians. They're beginning to recognize it. And it also has the added benefit of being the right thing to do. And the the way to phrase this, uh, you know, help me with this. It seems to me that the thing to do is when you call 202-224-3121, the uh, telephone number for the House Representative switchboard, and you say, uh, you know, my zip code is, you know, 93042. Uh, mm -hmm. Who's my representative? And they say, oh, that's Earl Blumenauer. You say, please connect me. They connect you to the office. And I think I'm sure Earl has already signed on. He's a good guy. But, but you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm just pulling examples out of, out of my left ear here. Um, but when, when you are connected to that congressional office, what you would want to say is, would you please tell the congressperson, the congressman or woman, would you please tell my representative to, uh, to sign the petition, the discharge petition, to force Paul Ryan to hold a vote in the House of Representatives about whether to, re to, to support net neutrality, whether or not to support net neutrality. Would that be the easiest way to say it? Yeah, they should, yeah you want them to support uh, the Congressional Review Act bill on net neutrality. Right, uh, I'm just concerned about by, too, many, too many words that people yeah. don't know. You know, it's just, yeah. you know. Uh, 
So just those three, though, I think are the key Congressional Review Act or CRA, as they call it up there, on right. net neutrality. This is they want them to support or they can say Mike Doyle's bill. That's the lead sponsor. Mike Doyle's bill to uh, reverse what the FCC did on net neutrality. Right. I but the reality is every, every re- office has gotten thousands of calls and, and they will definitely uh, want to hear yours. Yeah, absolutely. And the reality is that if Paul Ryan would simply allow a vote right now, this would pass. It passed the Senate on a bipartisan basis, it will pass the House. It just It's just Paul Ryan has to allow there to be a vote. This is all about getting around Paul Ryan. And so you might want to call Paul Ryan's office, too, and say, what you're doing is wrong. With, yeah, what do that's you think? absolutely right. And the committees as well uh, that are blocking this. I mean, the fact is that this bill, which is vastly popular, supported by the vast majority of Americans, can't get a vote in the House because the Republicans don't want to vote on it. So that's right. why we've had to go this route of the discharge petition. But we saw in the Senate... Uh, where this, this route uh, it was able to go around the traditional blockades in the Senate, uh, that, again, when they were forced to vote, uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents alike all supported this bill because they knew where their constituents expected them to be. I yeah. believe that's true in the House, too, and all the members of the House, they face a choice. They can, they can be obstructionists here. They can continue to block and support this terrible decision by the Trump FCC, or uh, they, can, uh, they, they can move forward with this vote, restore the protections that we all expect, and if they don't do it, uh, no question, this is becoming an issue that people are taking with them into the poll, polls and the polling booths, which hasn't been true before, but it's definitely true now. And members of Congress all across the country are hearing about it in town halls. They're hearing about it when they're walking down the street. Net neutrality is now one of those issues, and Congress should be, and I think we're seeing today, is paying attention. Yeah, amen. Real quick, Craig, uh, what's the deal with the, uh, uh, with the Sinclair merger? Well, I, I'm, I'm almost surprised to be here with good news, but I actually have some, which is yesterday, again, against all expectations, the Republican chair of the FCC, Ajit Pai, no friend of the public interest, uh, did something good. He issued uh, a statement saying that he was not going to sign off on the Sinclair Tribune merger at this time, and he was going to do something called designating it for a hearing, which is uh, sort of like at the FCC, it's kind of like when you tell your kids that the family pet went to live on a farm. <laughs> you know, once something's designated for a hearing, it doesn't tend to come back, uh, yeah. which is not what we expected to happen on Sinclair. But that deal is now in real trouble. It's not dead yet. There could be further negotiations. But the indications are that Sinclair spent so much time misleading the FCC, setting up shell companies, trying to find ways to hold more and more power over local TV that even the Republican FCC, which had been its best friend, uh, even they got fed up with it and are now throwing this deal into jeopardy, which is great news for the public. And I think a result of the kind of public pressure we've seen, especially in the last three or four months, when people finally figured out, wow, this Sinclair company is really dangerous. They're pushing right-wing views. They need to be stopped. Uh, Yesterday, uh, it looks like they might actually be stopped, and that's good news. Or at least slowed down. Craig Aaron, the president and CEO of Free Press and Free Press Action Fund. Freepress.net is the website. You can tweet him at not Aaron Craig. And Craig, thanks a lot for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. I always appreciate it. Great talking with you. We'll be right back. Amazing. I'm just looking at some of the headlines here on Think Progress. Man killed by Chicago police was trying to show officers his gun license when they blindsided him. Here are all the Republican leaders and conservative activists. Maria Butina, she's the now in jail Russian spy, met with, and it's a picture of her and Wayne LaPierre, and it says, and is this the unnamed American who helped Russia infiltrate the NRA? Paul Ryan uses extremely as dubious talking point to downplay Russia's attack on U.S. democracy. And then this, this from Media Matters, Zachary Pleat writing over at MediaMatters.org. Fox News, which is overtly friendly with the NRA and regularly hosts its representatives, has so far devoted minimal coverage to the arrest of the alleged Russian agent. This is the woman who was apparently uh, collaborating with Wayne LaPierre to bring the NRA in as an asset for the Russian Federation inside the the Republican Party. Uh, They say Fox anchor Shepard Smith covered the story when it first broke yesterday, and Fox host Shannon Bream spent a couple minutes discussing it on her late-night show. This morning, Fox did not even mention Butina or the NRA today until its noon show outnumbered, according to Snapstream transcripts, even as CNN and MSNBC both covered on multiple shows last night and this morning. Fox has just, I mean, they have become the, the, they they are, they've become state media. You know, they've just, it's, it's mind-blowing. So, Annie in Dodge County, Wisconsin, listening to WRRB. Hey, Annie, what's up? 
Um, I've been thinking of this ever since I saw it, and today you made sort of a, you were making connections between um, Mr. Trump and the uh, Nazis. And I go along with you. I, I try not to watch all the new violent shows and everything like that. And I found old shows like the early edition show. I don't know if you ever heard of that, where the guy gets the newspaper for the day ahead. No, no, I, I've never and, even heard of it. Yeah, it's a really sweet show. I it's on. It's on Netflix. Pardon? It's on Netflix. Um, no, I, I don't have anything. All I have uh, is over the air TV. Oh, so I see. I, okay, so you're watching reruns. Yep. Oh, so yeah, anyhow, yeah, you were talking, yeah. you wanted to talk about how Make America Great Again, MAGA, has older roots than we thought. Yes, and on one of these shows, he has to battle some Nazis, whatever, that are having a march. Right. And there they, there, there was a sign, I don't know if this was early 90s or so, but in, in marching in the group, one of the people was carrying a sign saying, Make America Great Again. Oh, my gosh. I'm wondering if the word again was missing, that was the official slogan of the Reagan campaign in 1980, was Make America Great. Oh, maybe. I, I don't know. But that's what the Nazis were marching and carrying yeah, in the, this TV Oh, show. That, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, the Nazi slogan, uh, you know, uh, Deutschland über alles and all that kind of stuff. But the, uh, but the American Nazis in the 40s was America first. That was their slogan. And uh, the American First Movement was basically uh, don't let the Jews who are fleeing Europe come into the United States, uh, among other things. But it was, it was a kind of a pseudo-American Nazi movement. Fascinating stuff. Annie, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. And thanks for listening to the program. Um, Leslie in Oak Park, Illinois. Hey, Leslie, what's on your mind today? Well, thank you very much for the platform for people to talk. Um, Let's make this very simple. I agree with all the things that they've been saying about paper ballots only. But what you have to remember is paper ballots only can be swapped. So we have to have, and I'm speaking as of, as having been a judge of election and equipment manager for many, many elections, you have to have the election judges initial the paper ballots to make, um, to, um, to, to make them authentic. Yeah, authenticate the ballots, in other words. Right. Yeah, and that makes sense. And in Cook County, uh, our, clerk, our clerk is saying that, oh, we're going to have ballots that could be printed out, and then people can just look at them to make sure they're right, and then they'll go through the other machine to read them and, to, and do the tally thing. But if they're not initialed in between, mm. they can be swapped, and the results can be changed. Good, good point, Leslie. That's a very good point. Thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Glenn in um, West Salem, North Carolina. Hey, Glenn, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Just had a question for you. I'm just curious to why the uh, Democratic Party never said anything about the Russian collusion or the Russians manipulating the system until Hillary Clinton lost. And I recall Obama making a comment about Donald Trump saying something about that. He said, uh, you just need to put your work boots on to go to work and win the election fair and square, Trump. It, he said it was a joke that the Russians were trying to manipulate the system. A very distinct remember. Well, how come that's not being bought up now? Glenn, what do you think happened? Uh, Trump won the election fair and square. Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate. Okay. So you, you don't believe the FBI and the CIA and the National Security no. Agency and the U.S. military... You know, Army intelligence, Navy intelligence, Air Force. You don't, you don't believe our own intelligence systems. Glenn, I'm, I'm curious. If, 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 I'm genuinely curious here. If, I'm not trying to debate this with you. I'm trying to understand something. Um, who told you not to believe the U.S. intelligence agencies? Pardon me, I understand what you said. You said that you don't believe the U.S. intelligence agency, that you do believe Vladimir Putin. I'm wondering who told you to, to, to think that way. Because using common sense. You know, that's why the, Trump was elected, because we're tired of the military, I mean, not the military, but the, uh, the government lying to us about stuff. And let's, let's, uh, let's go back and look at... Uh, so Trump's the government, but he doesn't lie to you, but the rest of the government does? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Interesting. And how do you know this? And, and it seems to me like you would agree with that, because you seem to be pretty much anti-government yourself. You seem to be a socialist. Glenn, how do you know that you're that's... How do you know... How, how do you know for sure... I mean, do you have a, a feeling or a picture or a voice in your head? How do you, and I don't mean that uh, like, you know, you're crazy or anything. I'm not trying to suggest that. I mean, how do you know for sure, you know, with that level of certainty, you sound absolutely convinced of this, 
that Donald Trump won fair and square, that there were no shenanigans with the voting machines, that the Russians didn't hack anything, that, that uh, the ads that were on Facebook had no impact, that it's all because Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate. How do you know that? Do you, well, do you recall somebody saying something or do you, well, do you remember a picture of something that, you know, how do you know? Well, let's see. If there's any evidence to prove this, let's see the evidence. Okay. Uh, allegations against no evidence. Show me one shred of evidence that this is true that Trump colluded with the Russians. Show us some evidence. If it's there, then I'll believe it. But uh, I've been hearing all these people accuse him, but there's no evidence. And if he did do it, then why is he being prosecuted for it? Right. I'm no guessing, evidence. I'm guessing, Glenn, that you don't read the New York Times, the Washington Post. You don't watch CNN or MSNBC. I do watch them, yes. Because I like to get a round view of everything. So haven't you seen the evidence? One side or the other. Pardon me? Haven't you seen the evidence? No, they haven't given any evidence. They just indicted. They oh, just indicted a dozen. Uh, you know, they, so far they've indicted 25 Russian intelligence officers, and the and the the last indictment, you know, explicitly said, okay, they hacked into these these uh, election systems. They, you know, I mean, the the, the these indictments that so have been delivered. Saying, so you're saying that they they went in there and redid the counts. The Russians went in there and redid the system and, and did the counts for us. I don't know if that's true they or not, Glenn, and I'm I'm skeptical. But I am concerned that I live in a country where that would be a possibility. Aren't you? Well, let me ask you, why did our president at the time, Obama, get up there and make the comment that it was a joke that the Russians were trying to manipulate the system? Why did he say that? Uh, Obama never said that. Obama did, did not say, say it was a joke. President Obama did, actually said it was. Yes, he did. No, he did not. He did say that. I'm 100% sure. I went back and watched the video last night of him saying that. He, he said, Trump, put your work boots on, go to work and win the election fair and square, and talk, stop talking about Russia. Glenn, Glenn, you're, I'm sure you saw a video of Trump saying something like that, but... No, it wasn't Trump, it was Obama. Excuse me, Obama saying something like that? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that there's probably something out there that's been pulled out of context in some way that, that seemed logical to you, but the reality is that President Obama, when he handed the White House uh, off to Trump, and, and in fact, you know, I mean, both of them were briefed. This was even during the campaign, they were both briefed that the Russians were trying to, trying to get into our elections. And you know, well, affect Obama and influence our elections. And Obama has been very, very serious about this. I mean, you know, one one little video in, in which, well, you know, apparently you're willing to to construct your entire, or or that's just reinforcing your worldview. Uh, Glenn, I, you know, thanks for the call I, and and uh, you know for for not going berserko at me. It's always nice to hear from the other side. Uh, I think it gives us all a little insight and into, into how people are thinking these days. Uh, at least Republicans. Ronald in Tallahassee. Hey, Ronald, what's on your mind today? Hello, sir. I'm 68. I'm sure you remember John Lennon. I do. Well. There's a whole book called The Murder of John Lennon by Fenton Bressler. Uh, it details how the CIA and the FBI killed him. There's a book called On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison. It details how the CIA and the FBI yeah, I, killed I, you know, Ronald, I'm, I'm real familiar with Jim Garrison's book. Uh, okay. Lamar Walter and I wrote two books I, about that I, topic, and I can tell you, you Jim Garrison was wrong. And I don't know about the, you know, the, 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 the book saying, but you know, there, there are, A, our intelligence you agencies as... You were, asking the, you were asking the gentleman, where is the CIA? Are you cut me off again? No, I'm still here. Are you there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. You were you were asking the gentleman where is the proof that the CIA or something in fact where's where no the I simply asked him you know why do you not CIA believe lies. the U S agencies there's, there's oodles of proof that the CIA and the FBI does dirty things and now you have to take into consideration how many people have the CIA and the FBI killed how many people has Trump killed yeah well if you're looking at you know in the Middle East he's killed a lot and <laughs> okay. uh, you know. oh, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, right. but with regard to the CIA and the FBI and all that kind of stuff, yeah, they, I mean they they have people. a they, you know Ronald, you got to let me finish a sentence once in a while too. Okay. Uh, they do in fact have a fairly sordid history. I mean, look at the FBI's history just with Martin Luther King, among other things. I mean, you know, is, uh, the 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 uh, the FBI has done some terrible things in its past, and and you know, this is, so has the CIA. Look at their involvement with you know these regimes in Central America that are now melting down in front of us because of our involvement. But that doesn't mean that today, when all of our intelligence agencies in aggregate get together and say, hey, here's the evidence, here's what happened, and a judge in a court of law says, uh, you know, yes, I will hand down an indictment based on this evidence. That, that's pretty compelling to me. That, that, you know, that's pretty compelling to me. I'm, you know, and, and yeah, enough said, I think.
Uh, Bill in Chicago. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, that John Lennon murder, that was the most, you know, well-witnessed and documented murder. No CIA. It was one nutball killed him. But yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure you're right, Bill. Yeah, that's not why I call that. That guy who was talking about Obama said something about Russia and forget about Russia. That caller completely conflated that. What he, what he heard, what he should have heard was oh, um, Trump kept saying, it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. And Obama was calling back on that. Ah, okay. Thank you for that. I was wondering what video clip he could possibly be talking about, and that makes perfect sense. Bill, thank you for uh, answering, you know, my question of our conservative, uh, you know, our hapless conservative. Our, I, you know, it's, uh, I'd say clueless, but I don't want to insult him. But uh, get a clue. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We will be back tomorrow. Uh, keep your eye on what's going on in the White House. There's something big cooking right now. Uh, and don't forget, democracy requires you. It's not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Thank you.